Helping our patients manage their immune health has never been as important as now. Hi, it's Lisa Costabier and you are invited to my upcoming live and online masterclass on how to build immune fitness and manage acute viral infections. You can catch this masterclass on May 11 as part of the Biocuticals Clinical Mastery Series. If you are looking for more evidence-based strategies for maintaining optimal immune health, reserve your place now, biocuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath, and joining us today is Dr. Andrea Huddleston. This is part two of two in our series on the biomechanics of reproductive health. Andrea is a women's health natural fertility expert and integrative chiropractor practicing in Perth. She's the co-host of the award-winning top-rated podcast, Wellness Women Radio, and is affectionately referred to as the period whisperer by her patients. In addition to her chiropractic degrees, Dr. Andrea holds two postgraduate master's degrees in women's health medicine and reproductive medicine. She's an absolute leader in women's health. She's a sought after presenter, an avid coffee addict, and a crazy dog lady. Andrea, it's so great to have you back. Oh, Damo, thanks so much. Um, it's always so weird having someone um, introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I imagine having I that with like, Marcus Pierce every week. Like it's crazy. Oh, I know, and I can. I'm sure he embellishes on all of it each time for you, Damo. <laughs> <laughs> every time, oh, Andrea. The uh, the last podcast that we did was um, it, it pretty much broke the internet. Everybody absolutely loved it, um, and such oh, great feedback. So and people going, "Tell us the other three S's." You only got through <laughs> two of the S's, so thank you so much for joining me to uh, to go through all of that again. Uh, Damien, thanks so much for having me back. And I have to say that um, this is, you know, obviously part two of of our recording. And for the first time in my podcasting history, I had yes. to go back and listen to um, a podcast that I've done. That's the very first time that I've ever done that in the hundreds of shows that I've recorded. <laughs> it's the very first time I've actually re-listened. <laughs> but so good. Why don't we just do a quick recap and just go through what we, we covered very quickly in the first mm. podcast, just in case people are listening to this one, you know, part two of two, um, if they're listening to this one as the first one. So we covered okay. off two of the five S's to start with. Let's just recap those. Yeah, so in a very simplistic way, you know, I and this is the way that I sort of communicate with patients, which I think is why it's sort of relevant, that I break down um, hormonal imbalances and the, and the causation of those into five categories, and I call it my five S's of hormonal imbalances. And the mm-hmm. ones that we covered were stress um, mm-hmm. and also spinal problems. So we sort of we looked at the different uterine positions relevant to, um, you know, the causation from pelvic misalignments and um, different different um, sort of shifts in in the pelvis and the sacrum and everything else. And we talked about the innovation to all of that and how that's relevant. And we talked about symptoms of, you know, antiverted versus retroverted um, uteruses and, um, you know, coccyx issues and trauma and <laughs> all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, what else do we cover, Damo? We, we gently touched on um, pain and hormones and the interaction there. Um, yeah, and we I want to about, deep dive you know, into that a little bit later on. I reckon we'll deep yeah. dive into that because it's so important, yeah. pain and hormones, what's the relationship? So, And I know you've got some great stuff to talk about with that, so we'll, we'll go into that a little bit later on. Yeah, sounds good. Um, and we obviously talked a lot about stress and how that influences yeah. the 
our hormones, our whole hormonal picture, the menstrual cycle and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really great thing just to consider stress because, you know, quite often we talk about stress just being an emotional thing. Um, but from a chiropractic perspective, we talk about stress being from three different um, you know, aspects. We talk about the physical stresses that we might actually encounter, which could be trauma, maybe the birth process, mm. maybe even sitting or whatever else. Uh, we talk about the emotional component of stress, of course. And then, of course, there's the chemical component of stress, which we will be talking on. We'll be talking about synthetic hormones. We'll be talking mm. about sugar later on, which you know affects the way in which the brain communicates with the body, the way the body communicates with the brain. So that model of afferent communication so feed back to the brain from the body to the brain and then efferent communication that's feed uh, feed forward communication from the brain to the body um, is impacted from stress you know whether it's the, whether it's physical stress emotional stress or chemical stress and we want to make sure that everyone listening to this today uh, gets at least a little bit of a grasp of where we're coming from from a chiropractic perspective as well yeah, and I think that we really downplay the effects of stress for women as well. Mm. Um, you know, we, we think about, say, emotional stress just as being some sort of big trauma like the loss of a loved one. But it can simply be just that constant chronic, um, you know, rushing around, the always trying to get to the kids to school on time and the hectic mornings and then, you know, literally having five different full-time jobs because they've got kids and a job and trying to be a wife and friends and, you know, the demands on women these days are greater than they've ever been ever. So is it any wonder that our hormone and our whole hormonal picture and reproductive function is the worst it's ever been? Yeah, no, there's no wonder in my mind, no way. And and for the men listening to this, we're not discounting stress for men either. It's just that you don't have a mm. uterus and, or ovaries. And so we're not talking about you today. This is all about the girls. So just uh, keeping yes. it real, keeping it real. Andrea, yes, um, some, some of the questions that came back from that particular podcast uh, that we did um, revolved around is there a relationship between the cervical spine and the lumbar spine and then innovation, you know, to the pelvis as a result of that? Um, and, and my immediate answer is yes, of course, you know, where there's dysfunction up high, there's dysfunction down low. And, uh, and so for me, that's a, a really important thing for us to consider and to talk about. Are you able to maybe elaborate a little bit on that connection um, between the cervical spine and the lumbar spine? Holy moly. Um, well, <laughs> or I can do it. <laughs> Thanks, Damo. Um, look, in the first things that come to mind when you say, is there a connection between the cervical and lumbar spine? And of course there is because everything within the body is connected, right? And um, particularly everything in the spinal column is connected. And even just dural tension patterns on one part of the system we know will twist and contort. Um, in that reciprocal area from top and bottom. So if you can imagine almost like twisting a towel and you see where those anchor or tension points is, it's kind of similar within that dural system that coats or covers that spinal cord. Um, and there's that neurological, um, I, I guess, reciprocity between sort of top and bottom. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, Is that it how does. you'd explain it, Damo? Yeah. That's how, when you were saying it, I was like, that's exactly how I explained it, Andrea. And what's really <laughs> important to kind of just bring that back one step is that the spinal cord is connected to the inside of the vertebra through the meninges. And the meninges mm. um, have a degree of uh, tension in them that's normal. So the normal tension that's in the meninges offers the spinal cord protection from the environment. So the cerebral spinal fluid um, that you know surrounds the spinal cord as well as the brain uh, gives a, a, a padding, I suppose, 
repose or a gravity-less environment for the nervous system to be protected in. And so any kind of forward head posture or trauma to the neck or dysfunction in the thoracic uh, spine or um, accentuated lumbar curve or any of those sorts of things that we see as chiropractors um, definitely can uh, you know, be related to what we're talking about with regards to um, the health of the reproductive system. And one of the things we like to say is a healthy spine, um, a healthy body, and, uh, and, mm. and this is where this comes from. I mean, I read a study a long time ago that was done in monkeys um, mm-hmm. that showed that there was a bi-directional relationship between the sacral nerves and the hypothalamus. And oh, wow. um, so I was trying to... Um, I was trying to understand the uh, correlation or the impact of physical stress on the body, say say trauma to the pelvis or trauma to the sacrum, and yeah. is there a direct fallen effect to, say, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis or something like that? And obviously we know that the hypothalamus right. is the absolute control mechanism that then projects to the pituitary and so on and so forth. And yes. um, there was that – it did show that there was – this, um, like I said, a bidirectional relationship directly with those sacral nerves and projecting directly to the hypothalamus. And I can't remember the exact, you know, neurophysiology that sort of created that. Um, but it sort of spoke to that there is, you know, obviously potential there. Um, but also I think what you've just described is why we always look at the whole person and why we can't um, be reductionistic in our way of how we're, looking at a person's health or looking at their physical body or anything else because whatever's happening in their pelvis and their uterus, we've got to look at the whole person rather than just one tiny little component of it because then we're missing the big picture. Yeah, I agree with you. And I I think that's something that I hung on after listening to our podcast the other day together um, was just that reinforcement that this is a collaborative approach, you know, using – you know, integrative approaches that not only include chiropractic and nutritional herbal medicine and um, integrative medicine and so on and so forth. Like, we've really got to be mindful that we're dealing with a person here, not just a reproductive system. We're dealing with a human being, not just some dysfunctional ovaries or a uterus that doesn't want to behave itself. You know, we've, we've got a human here. So, it's, yes. um, you know, we've got to manage the health of the patient. And that would include assessment of the spine and nervous system as much as it would um, the health of the hormones. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Mm, All right. So that's a good little recap on where we got to with, um, with the first episode, the first two S's. Let's move on to the third S, uh, the third S being sugar. How is this related? You know, what's sugar got to do with anything? I mean, it tastes good. What, what's it got to do with anything, Andrea? Um, and I think that this is, and you know, this is certainly not going to come as a surprise to practitioners because they're fully aware of these things, right? But I think it's really important for patients to understand how much of an influence their diet has on their you know, whole hormonal picture and even their stress levels and their inflammation and everything else. And um, I think that the the summary of this, the whole culmination of why sugar or just, you know, processed carbohydrates in general are such a problem is because it disrupts our hormones because of how it stimulates that inflammatory cascade. Mm. 
And if we look at, um, you know, two of the major conditions that um, are so problematic for women these days, like endometriosis or polycystic-ovarian syndrome, those two conditions are already so inflammatory in nature. So if we can decrease the influx of that inflammation from, say, a dietary perspective, then surely that is going to be beneficial to them. And isn't it interesting, um, Damien, that women who present with that classic picture of, say, estrogen excess also have really disordered blood glucose levels. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I always think that it's just, it's not a coincidence at all. Right. Um, you know, and there's always that Goldilocks effect for, you know, the right amounts of estrogen, the right types of estrogen and how our body's processing it. Um, but there is... Um, now, I could be going off on a bit of a tangent here, so if I am, just um, just stop me. But there's certainly that persistent perception that that estrogen has this adverse effect on carbohydrate metabolism. So when our hormones are disrupted, we're already having changes to how we're going to be processing those sugars in the first place. But then what comes first, the chicken or the egg, is the fact that we were yeah. you know, consuming too much of it in the first place. But we mm. also know that short-term, like super physiological estrogen administration in like for example, um, oral contraceptive pills or hormone replacement therapy or something like that, has an adverse effect on glucose tolerance. So, you know, we get this suppression of that. Oh, sorry, Damien, did I interrupt you? No, no, I was just, I was was loving this because it just Mm. sounds like a complete circle for me. You know, so at some point on the train line, you're going to like, it's either you're eating too many carbs and that's affecting your estrogen or it's your estrogen and that's affecting your glucose metabolism. But it's one or the other, you know, so you got to work out, I suppose, and it's up to the practitioner to work out where's the fault here? Is it the fact that you're producing or there's too much estrogen, whether it be synthetic, Mm. and we'll, we'll talk about synthetic hormones shortly um or is it you know endogenous is you producing too much yourself so uh, and, and is that because you're eating too much carbohydrate uh, is your blood sugar dysfunctional because of the food and then affecting your hormones or is it the other way around that's up to us to kind of work that out isn't it yeah yeah exactly and like i said it's like this goldilocks effect so um if we have you know too much of, say, synthetic estrogens that's going to affect our glucose tolerance. But then we also know in, um, I think the only evidence I've seen is from animal studies, but I've seen this um, certainly with my patient population as well is after like an ovarectomy, um, they have less insulin um, stabilisation, you know, so we see like an increased risk of diabetes after that. And so what is that connection there? And I think it's, you know, sugar is obviously so pro-inflammatory and we know that it disrupts and changes the gut microbiota. It alters that um, gut like mucosal barrier, which obviously triggers immune changes. And then if we go back to say endometriosis, that's that immune mediated inflammatory condition that again is exacerbated by those hormonal imbalances. So it's just adding fuel to the fire there. Um, and, you know, then sugar encourages that neutrophil infiltration into the gut, increases our IL-6 and all of our pro-inflammatory markers. Then it increases, you know, like E. coli and the candida species in the gut. So, you know, and both of those are great at signaling inflammatory stuff too. And we've also seen that high levels of E. coli in the uterine microbiome is associated with much more painful periods. Um, they, it 
there's a much stronger propensity for that in cases of things like endometriosis. So there's so many ways that like sugar and excess carbohydrates and processed sugars and everything is entangled into hormonal disruption. Um, But I think the summary of it is that because of how it stimulates that inflammatory cascade, it is just what disrupts, you know, that whole hormonal pathway. Oh, so fascinating. And I know the naturopaths and the doctors who are already up to speed with a lot of this at the moment kind of going, yeah, yeah, we'll get that, I get that. But I think the key thing here that we want to kind of, you know, talk about and, and bring this back to is that this is a consideration too within the manual therapy space where we operate. And uh, and so we are also considerate of this and this is, you know, this is where we all start to work together. This is this dovetailing of professions to get this right, to get our patients' care right. But what mm. is really interesting about this is that inflammation occurs in the body and it may or may not cause pain. But you spoke about something earlier on and also in the last podcast where you mentioned that pain can also impact hormones. And so mm. I just wonder whether or not it's worth us talking right now about the influence of pain over appropriate regulation of hormones in a female's body. Um, oh, Damien, this... This whole um, connection between pain and hormones is so interesting Um, and it's what's actually made me interested in in pain in the first place. But the, I think I said previously is that there's this, this line that adequate pain control cannot be achieved without hormonal homeostasis. And so, and our hormone levels can serve as biomarkers of uncontrolled pain. And I know previously we talked about, um, say, cortisol and chronic stress and how when a patient is in chronic pain and, say, they've got chronic pelvic pain, their hormone levels match that of a really chronic stressful state. Um, and depending on, say, the patient's presentation, whether or not, you know, it's a woman with all of this estrogen excess, they're going to be someone who has a completely different influence on their pain processing. They're going to have completely different immune modulation of that. They're going to have a high incidence of autoimmune diseases and all sorts of other things because of the way their body is perceiving that. Um, and it's the same for men and their testosterone levels too. And I think we sort of briefly touched on that that before. Um, and I've got um, maybe I'll tell you like a little um, a case study from one of my patients that will sort of help to bring this all together. But please do that. Um, Everyone's going to want to hear about it. Like this is the <laughs> real world data um, that people want to hear about. So, so let me tell you, um, so I've got like a male and a female sort of scenario here. So one of my patients, Aaron, he's given me permission to talk about this. So he is a fireman. Um, he's a 40-year-old guy with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and he's the only patient I've ever seen with this condition. It is, you know, it is fairly rare. So his body doesn't make cortisol. And obviously this is the one and only hormone that our body cannot live without. And when I first saw him, he was in... Um, like he's been on a lifetime of corticosteroids because of the fact that, you know, obviously his system doesn't actually produce um, cortisol for itself. But he is this very highly strong, very stressed, but in a huge amount of pain as well. Um, And he had an injury at work where he got um, like an L5-S1 disc herniation and he had just like 
you know, irretractable pain. There was nothing that would touch the sides of that. Um, and he had, like, he obviously had to have surgery for that. And then after the surgery, he completely crashed um, because like he went into like adrenal crisis um, because there was just too much stress on his system for him to handle and they couldn't, you know, touch the, the edges of that pain. And when you look at his whole hormonal picture, he's got little to no testosterone really low DHEA and um, it's just interesting that his lifetime use of corticosteroids is influencing all of that. So it's not just the stress on his system, it's the fact that he's, you know, like obviously had to be on on steroids for such a long time but we also see that intermittently in short term with patients taking things like um, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. We know that there's a a refractory period of hormonal and sex hormonal suppression when they do that, which really worries me, particularly with men, if they're taking, um, yeah. you know, like ibuprofen and all of those sorts of things. It's actually suppressing their testosterone function. And when Aaron started actually using um, testosterone and DHEA therapeutically, his pain completely changed. He was able to actually get on top of it. Now, this is not to say that that is the solution for patients who are in pain, but for him, like that was the missing link for him. Um, and obviously working on all of the other um, stress reduction techniques. But um, those two things were what actually addressed that. Um, and then if we look on the other side of the spectrum, um, I had a patient who was, who was a nurse and she had she was 44. She had huge fibroids, like this really big, bulky uterus that resembled a woman who was sort of 25 weeks pregnant. Um, she had severe dysmenorrhea, severe menorrhagia, like, and just chronic, chronic pelvic pain. Um, she'd had a lifetime of, of trauma as well. Um, and then all the other um, sort of yellow flags that are associated with that. And they were wanting to put on multiple medications. We were trying to avoid her having hysterectomy and, and everything else. But her chronic pain was just so debilitating. And she had all of the classic picture of that estrogen excess. And then we actually tested her. Her estradiol was like over 4,000. Oh and gosh. like at its absolute peak when you're ovulating, we would look at that at maybe about 1,300. So yeah. it's like four times you know, what, what that should be. And she didn't have the capacity to be metabolizing that properly. So no wonder that she was in just so incredibly inflamed. She was yeah. in so much pain all the time. Um, yeah. So I think that those are just two classic pictures on each end of the spectrum of that, like, you know, estrogen excess or that, you know, really low testosterone function as well and how that is presenting in those patients with chronic pain. That's so unbelievable. That- and then so then like from a management perspective of that, there's a comp- there's a chiropractic component of that. There's a nutrition component to that. Um, I would think that that's mm-hmm. a, a, like that's that you're not using those interventions exclusively. Like you're not going, oh, let's just do mm. nutrition here, or let's just do chiro here, or let's just do some herbal medicine here. You're kind of involving um, all of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because and I think that there's like a beautiful marriage there between you know, manual therapies between herbal medicine and nutraceuticals and everything else because there has to be a change in diet, lifestyle, stress. There has to be a change in the way that body perceives stress as well. And I think that that's something that we do really well as, you know, chiropractors or physiotherapists or osteopaths, whatever it is, is just changing the way that that body maps and perceives that pain. So for the nurse, for example, she always associated her pelvic region with just severe pain. 
So she would be cringing before you would even try and palpate her abdominal area. She's expecting it to be painful. So you can imagine that association in her brain with that. So, you know, changing the way her brain is mapping that area to be, you know, of safety is completely, like it's going to make a really big difference for her. And the same with Aaron, the fireman, everything we had to do with him had to be about him experiencing safety within his body. And, you know, that's obviously something that we're working on is changing the way the body perceives stress. Oh, oh my goodness. That is a rabbit hole we could definitely go down. There's a whole day's worth of seminar in that one, I reckon. Um, but uh, we haven't got all that time. So, Andrea, I love that. And thanks for sharing those two case studies with us. I think that that's a great eye-opener for everybody listening to this podcast as to uh, how involved this can be and how important it is to be involving other practitioners in the care of these patients. Andrea, mm. I'd love to move on to the fourth S, sleep. It's pretty sure. important. We always talk about it, but um, what do you what do you want to talk about here with regards to sleep as one of your S's? And you know, this is probably a pretty easy one that we can go over. But um, I always like to call sleep like a force amplifier. So if you're sleep deprived, um, you know, life is pretty hell. And you ask any new mother, and how difficult it is to sort of tolerate that. Whereas if you get a good night's sleep, you can kind of take on the world, right? Um, sleep is when our hormones are made. It's when most women ovulate is is during the night. It's overnight. It's when we sleep. Um, we know that sleep deprivation increases our risk of so many things like, well, pretty much everything, um, but including, you know, atherosclerosis, it increases our time to conceive. Um, it affects how we make our hormones. Um, if we're not sleeping, we're not making human growth hormone. We're not doing all of those, that healing and repair that we need to be doing. We know that melatonin is one of the most important hormones involved in egg quality. So hence, you know, if we're too stressed to be making melatonin to be getting good night's sleep, then, you know, we're going to have pretty crappy eggs too. So that's obviously going to affect our fertility potential. And um, it shows that just two nights of partial sleep deprivation has been shown to decrease our, you know, our beneficial bacteria, increases insulin resistance, so hence inflammation again, and it affects that hormonal balance. So is it any wonder that mothers um, with young kids who maybe haven't recovered (laughs) completely their sleep cycles from maybe first bulb and now have their second bulb and, you know, they haven't had a good night's sleep in maybe five years, is it any wonder that they are then presenting with all of a sudden, like in almost in epidemic proportions, um, like hypothyroidism or thyroid problems because that's sort of in the way that I sort of view the whole um, endocrinology of a patient, that's sort of one of the last stepping stones of that hormonal dysfunction. So it's no wonder. Um, So, you know, sleep is not just for rest and relaxation. It's how our whole body repairs and restores itself, including our hormones. Yeah, totally. There's a whole lot to be done with regards to sleep. And I know there's other podcasts within the FX Medicine series that have covered sleep. And I think maybe Adrian might have done a podcast on sleep. Um, I might be wrong there, but maybe just go back and listen to all of the other podcasts on FX Medicine just to make sure that Adrian has or hasn't done one. But I think he has. Um, But I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, just in case, listen to them all. Um, But what I was thinking about that when when you were just mentioning that is the importance of sleeping in cycles of circadian cycles, you know, circadian rhythm. Mm. So a lot of people go, I've got to get your eight hours worth of sleep or you've got to get, I don't know, 12, I don't know, 12 would work, 11 hours worth of sleep or whatever it's got to be. People kind of have this rudimentary number, they throw eight hours out there. But we think about and you consider um, a sleep cycle being 
um, 90 minutes, you know, 45 minutes in, 45 minutes out, you know, ideally. Um, when you do the maths on that, eight hours just doesn't work. It's six hours, seven and a half hours or nine hours. They're the kind of cycles of sleep that you kind of want to be doing because if you're breaking your sleep, that, of course, initiates a stress response as well, which is one of the things I talk about in that Crack Your Stress Code talk, Andrea, that I do. Um, and it dovetails beautifully into what you're talking about here with regards to hormone regulation and melatonin and how important melatonin is. Like it's just... I suppose just as a quick summary, sleep's really important and you need the right amount of sleep, you know, at the end of the day, don't you? Isn't that right? And I just find it so fascinating how I think a lack of sleep or that chronic sleep deprivation just predisposes you to everything. So um, we know a couple of the things that mess with our leptin receptors in our brain that, you know, obviously block that that satiation response. And the, the two main things there is sleep deprivation and sugar. So when we're chronically, um, you know, sleep deprived, and I'm sure everybody has experienced this at one, one point or the other, you can literally stand in front of the fridge and eat all day long and not feel full. And it's just because you're sleep deprived and it's mm. just, you know, interfering and messing with, the, you know, all of your leptin production and receptors in your brain and everything else. And then um, you're craving sugar, you're craving those, um, those things that's going to give you that quick energy fix, which is going to further exacerbate that problem. So everything is entangled there. Um, mm. But, and I think that getting sleep right for a patient, if you can't get that right, I just find that nothing is going to change, um, yeah. which Damo is one of the things that I really love about the work that we do as well, because what what is one of the most common things that we hear from our patients initially when they start care is that they're sleeping so much better. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that you know, this comes back to that sympathetic um, dominant state where people are so tired and wired but that they can't get to sleep. But from a chiropractic perspective, the impact on the sympathetic nervous system is just so profound. So, you know, in calming the sympathetic nervous system. So I love that. And that, you know, is a really nice, that's a dovetail. Again, another reason why um, working with your chiropractor um, and in collaboration, you know, from a nutritional perspective, naturopathic perspective, integrative medicine perspective, osteopathic perspective, we all have our own little um, strings and bows, but um, there's some really nice things that we can do to work together, which is really important. Andrea, there's an epidemic, there's an epidemic of overuse of synthetic hormones. Um, Mm. I'm hearing, and I met with a girl the other day who's, you know, struggling with her health and well-being. and at the age of 13, she was put on the contraceptive pill and now she's like 26 years old. She's never actually, um, had a, a proper cycle. Um, she's sometimes never, ever taken the sugar pills because she just didn't want to have a bleed. Um, and so she's just continually taken synthetic hormones. And for me, that is the height of, oh, it's, it's poor, it's poor management. I had to say, like it's, it's almost, um, mismanagement i would say you'd have to go as far as saying that the people who prescribe these drugs haven't managed these patients properly and so now 13 years down the track their whole life doubled um on these pills on this hormone replacement therapy causing problems what are you noticing and and how does synthetic being the fifth s how does synthetic hormones impact uh, the work that we're doing Oh, Damien, I always um, get so sad and frustrated for that picture that you just talked about. And I hear that so often. Um, You know, it's that classic clinical picture that we see. You know, I might be working with a woman in her late 30s, 
desperately trying to conceive. And it's normally the, you know, the things that, you know, she may have done in her teen years and and 20s that are affecting her reproductive capacity at that stage. And when you go through that, you know, hormonal health history or that reproductive history, and she tells you that she was put on the pill when she was 13 or 15, but she only really had one menstrual cycle before that happened. Um, it's, it's so frustrating because you're right. I do think it's it's completely mismanaged, and because um, they've not allowed that hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access to mature at all. You know, it, we it takes almost ten years for our system to become sensitive enough to the huge influx of hormones that happens at puberty. So it's it can be 10 years for those little cellular receptors to be able to figure out what to do with all of those different hormones to figure out how to metabolize things properly and everything else like it's a and then for our brain to know what to do with them as well. And then when we're adding in oral contraceptives which is sometimes 10 times stronger than what our own body makes so those you know absolutely super physiological um, levels of say synthetic estrogens you can imagine the the changes that that sort of initiates for the body and how it completely suppresses or takes their own ovarian function offline. And sometimes it's irreversible. Like I've seen women with that hypothalamic um, amenorrhea and it's primary, that primary amenorrhea because of the fact that they haven't actually been allowed to initiate puberty properly without the influx of those hormones. Um, and it's completely devastating to their system. And we also know that oral contraceptives during those teen years dramatically impacts mental health and increases their risk of depression and anxiety for life. And mm. even after they've stopped, you know, the, the oral contraceptive pills or, um, you know, hormonal contraceptives. So it increases their risk of mental health issues for life. It also increases um, the risk of having deep infiltrative endometriosis. Um, you know, these things can be bubbling below the surface, but there's that Band-Aid that's been put over it. So they're not necessarily feeling or noticing those signs and symptoms that are giving them the warning signs that their reproductive system has gone a little bit haywire. And then all of a sudden women come off the pill and their system is going completely berserk. And it's because of how disrupted their all of their hormones are. Um, that's my little soapbox for the moment. Um, <laughs> um, I'm loving it. But it's oh, devastating. It is devastating. We know that... The more natural cycles women are able to have, there's a direct correlation with that and, um, you know, essentially reduction in comorbidities for the rest of their life. So we know that having healthy, normal menstrual cycles for as long as possible is the healthiest thing that a woman can do for her body to stay healthy and well for a really long time. Um, and, you know, that that's obviously not a surprise to us. Um, but being on the pill or hormonal contraceptives definitely does not, um, does not create that same state. And my biggest issue with it is that now it's being used for, you know, as the wonder drug for absolutely everything else that it was originally, um, yeah. you know, designed for. You know, the, the pill came out in the 1950s as part of our, like the female reproductive revolution, which was great, but now... We're seeing all the dark side of it um, and how it has such a devastating effect on pretty much all areas of the body. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. What What else do you want to go into there, Damo? In regards, yeah, to there's so much we could go into there. <laughs> I know. Um, there's so much, but I think you know, obviously, that's that's a huge consideration. I think that every single person listening to this podcast to be aware of that, um, and it's really nice just to tie in um, S for synthetic, um, you know, in this in this space because these are all considerations that we all must you know think about with regards to all female reproductive health issues. But one of the things that we, um, not that we're neglecting or we're not speaking much about, is the other end of the, repro- the female reproductive age um, being menopause. Uh, mm. And so I'd love to just talk about that just, you know, briefly over the next, you know, five or so minutes, I suppose, Andrea, just as we come to the close of this podcast. Um, because it's so important, yes, um, there's you know, all good things come to an end and menopause is the end of the reproductive um, term for a woman. It signals that, um, but so many things actually um, happen at that point in time. From a chiropractic perspective, we're considerate of bone mass, of course, but what else Mm. is going on with menopause that we need to be aware of from a chiropractic perspective that we can dovetail into the care that we're all providing? I think that to really take care of women from a holistic sort of perspective as, you know, a chiropractor or a naturopath or, you know, whatever sort of practitioner that you are, really understanding menopause properly um, and how it affects, you know, obviously the female system and how everything changes so dramatically is really critical to honouring that system and knowing that um, you've got, you know, about 400 hints to get it right in menopause. So (laughs) the way a woman, um, I guess, uh, does her menstrual cycle and how balanced that is is going to give you some really good hints as to what menopause or perimenopause is going to be like for them. So they may go through that perimenopausal hell that I'm sure all women and practitioners are well and truly aware of, you know, that that hormonal transition is is just as um, fluctuating as, say, puberty. It's it's such a, a an immense time of hormonal chaos. And then when we get to menopause, we haven't necessarily um, taken care of ourselves or, or sort of tried to look after ourselves well enough and got our stress and everything else under control. Then menopause is obviously going to be hell and our risk factors and comorbidities in that other half of our life um, is they're just going to be so much higher. And if we're looking at, say, structural considerations, I think it's really important to remember that obviously there's a change in, in our hormones when we get to menopause. And it's not that the ovaries, you know, give up the ghost and they've just stopped working. They're just, their function changes. And obviously the adrenal glands take over the production of all of our reproductive hormones from that point. Um, so we've got to make sure that we're you know, helping women to really nurture their adrenals um, when they're in menopause so that we've still got hormonal balance because we're designed for hormonal balance through, through the entirety of our life. We're not necessarily designed for hormonal chaos. And so when we're in menopause, obviously there's going to be a reduction in estrogen production. That's natural, that's healthy, that's what's supposed to happen. But inevitably with that bone loss does occur and that loss of estrogen is a major factor affecting, you know, osteoporosis for menopause or postmenopausal women. And there's a 75% bone loss that occurs in about 20 years from the onset of menopause. So how critical is that for us wow. to actually know and understand? And that's not necessarily age-related. So if a woman goes through early menopause or has that, um, you know, premature ovarian um, dysfunctional failure and she goes through menopause in her 30s, by the time she's 50, she's already had 75% bone loss. 
So that's pretty important to make sure that we're picking up on any of those signs and symptoms early. Yeah. And that is because obviously the declining estrogen and testosterone, but that vertebral bone mass significantly decreases in perimenopausal women. So not just in menopause, but in perimenopause. And in the instance of, say, like a lumbar scoliosis, it increases significantly in the postmenopausal years. And it's an independent and that is independent of bone density or osteoporosis. So, oh, right. so like more a like woman, from a ligamentous kind of ligamentous tension and it's, Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, and yeah, right. just because of that, the fact that um the it's actually because of the biomechanics Um, and that lumbar scoliosis, because it's independent of osteoporosis, um, it's direct result of, um, I guess, poor spinal biomechanics. So how critical is, you know, actually what we do for prevention of that, because it's not Mm. just inevitable that our bone mineral density changes, but um, that scoliosis will increase dramatically within that time if, you know, it's not properly taken care of. Um, but then, yeah. you know, there's also the flow-on effect from that. We know that um, we see a high incidence of prolapses in the bladder, um, especially if a woman's had a hysterectomy. We can see bladder weakness, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. But there is really that direct influence of the balance of estrogen on musculoskeletal function, bone strength, bone mineral density, um, tendous ligamentous structures, collagen production, connective tissue. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it goes, um, it's very, very far reaching. And we really need to understand that and be able to look for those, those signs and symptoms in those perimenopausal and menopausal women. And there were hints from their cycling years as to what that is going to be like far out i'll tell you what everyone listening to this podcast better be rewinding because there's so much gold in this andrea and i just want to thank you again for joining us for part two of two um for you know in this fx medicine series particularly related to our role as chiropractors and manual therapists in the care of the female patient so thank you andrea for joining us today it's been mind-blowing enlightening and so entertaining and educational so thank you andrea oh damien thanks so much for having me thanks again oh thank you now to get more information on andrea go to andrea oh beg your pardon drandrea.com.au you could go to andrea.com.au but i don't think you'll get anywhere go to drandrea.com.au um you can find her on facebook um, as the period whisperer um, or you can go to thewellnesswomen.com.au and you can listen to all of her other podcasts which um will you know fill your bucket too there's incredible information in that Now, thanks everybody for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all of the show notes, transcripts and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where we'll be talking to Dr. Sandeep Gupta about all things mold. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.